0: Yarn. Yarn, 26. The highest cyclist in the world. It's the morning of Saturday the 12th of May, 2007. High in the Bolivian Andes, a sun-bleached concrete bowl, measuring 333 metres in circumference, is perched on the only bit of flat ground for miles. You could mistake this human-built structure for a crater atop a long extinct volcano. Jagged, snow-capped peaks surround the velodrome. Most agree, this is the highest cycling track and perhaps even the highest sporting arena in the world. 3,408 meters above sea level. Today, a crowd has gathered. The grandstand is half full, mainly with locals from the nearby city of La Paz. Most are in traditional dress. Men don fedora hats and women wear their bowler hats at jaunty angles to block the sun. In the back row, the Bolivian army brass band, dressed in their green fatigues, sit in a line. They erupt into song every few minutes. But at 11 a.m., the band and the chatter from the crowd fall silent. A figure emerges from a bright yellow tent at the center of the track. The large muscular man looks like a fighter jet pilot. He wears a white skin tight onesie, zipped up from the back and a teardrop shaped helmet on his head. A mirrored visor conceals his eyes and a clear oxygen mask covers the rest of his face. He walks up the steep slope of the banked track. His steps are ungainly and awkward in his cleated shoes as they clack on the cracked concrete surface He mounts a waiting bicycle and hands his breathing apparatus off to a helper. The cyclist clips his shoes into the pedals and pushes off, completing a slow and relaxed warm-up lap. When he returns to the start line, a digital board starts counting down from 50 seconds. The last five seconds emit beeps until the board hits zero. A loud blast sounds. The cyclist bursts out of the start gate. The stopwatch is ticking. The cyclist's mind is focused on his strategy. The best-case scenario is that in less than a minute, he'll be doubled over in excruciating pain, gasping for air, oxygen deprived, his blood acidic. The worst-case scenario is that he could fall unconscious or suffer from a high-altitude pulmonary edema, which could be fatal. Now he's starting to second-guess his strategy. This was the setting for Chris Hoy's 1km time trial world record attempt. In 2007, Scottish cyclist made the trip to Bolivia with a small team. Their goal was to beat the Frenchman Arnaud Tourneau's record of 58 seconds or to be exact 58.875 seconds. Tourneau set the record at the same location six years earlier in 2001. His ride was the first time anyone had done a sub one minute kilometre or kilo as the event is nicknamed. Chris Hoy was accompanied by his father David and his mother Carol, who were both heavily involved in organising the attempt in Bolivia. His team also featured a sports scientist or as Chris called him, the numbers guy and a doctor specialising in the effects of high altitude on the body. A journalist named Richard Moore followed along too. I've drawn from Richard's book and Chris Hoy's autobiography to tell this story but you'll also hear the voices of experts I talk to about altitude, track cycling and about one of the toughest events of them all, the 1km time trial. The premise of the kilo is super simple. How fast can you cycle a distance of 1km around a banked oval track? The clock is your only opponent. So why is that so hard? Here's Irish kilo rider Eamon Byrne
1: so the strategy is to it's to go hard, it's to stay fast and then you know try and try and hold on. So the shortest way around any velodrome is the black line. The more you're not on the black line, the longer you're going around the track. Every time you move up you're you're going longer, you're going further. Take the shortest way around as possible and hold your line, but that's also when you take in the variable of trying to pedal as fast as you can, as hard as you can and um, not everybody's able to ride the perfect line because you're you're literally the effort that you're putting in is causing you to you know swing the bike left and right so it is it's a skill in itself it, it's a bit more technical than that but i mean inevitably if you were going to go and do a kilo tomorrow that's what i'd be asking you to do just go and blow you know
0: that's the theory training for the event requires a lot of commitment
1: to be you know like competitive and do really good kilo time I, I did enjoy the process of it, but the training is is genuinely quite grim. <laughs> it's uh, it's never never a pleasant session unless it's a recovery spin. Yeah, lots of lots of high kind of blood lactate sessions, you know, which is it's it's quite vomit inducing. It's 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 uh, it's never um, like you never have like one where you go oh, that felt good. You're always going to be lying on the ground, and you're always going to be looking for a bin or something, you know.
0: And what does it feel like during a kilo attempt?
1: It, it's it's like riding through Trico, The walls close in. The walls absolutely close in. That last lap, I like to call it the sniper. The sniper hits you at some point, and and once he hits you, it's 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 holding on for dear life. But it it does. Look, the burn the burn is there, but you you don't really really feel the suffering until you're you're stopped and you finish. And there's some lot, I mean, you could look up lots of different videos of of modern um, sprinters now having done a kilo. And there's not one of them will be walking down the ramp looking happy and pretty.
0: In the 2000s, the men's kilo event was dominated by two riders, Chris Hoy and Arno Tuno.
2: Don't believe it, one What an unbelievable time. The fastest ever time at sea level. What an impressive, emphatic display of power and speed that was from a Frenchman.
0: 2 won the World Championships in 2000 and 2001. Hoy went on to win in 2002, 2004, 2006, and 2007.
2: Now the news is here that if Chris Hoy wants to get a medal, he's going to have to beat his lifetime best to even get a bronze medal.
0: In the 2004 Olympics, Hoy won the gold medal, leaving Tourneau with the silver.
2: he going to stop the clock, oh! Chris Hoy is the Olympic champion, the Commonwealth champion, the world champion. He's completed the Grand Slam, and Arnold Tunon is in second position. The
0: The two long-time rivals and friends will go head-to-head for the last time in La Paz. Well, not exactly head-to-head. Tourneau is at home 10,000 kilometres away in France, but his presence is very much felt. Hoy is trying to beat Tourneau's shadow so he can finally prove he's the fastest over one kilometre, and that he too can also break the one-minute barrier. This will be Hoy's last kilo ever. The world cycling governing body, the UCI, shocked everyone after the 2004 Olympics when they announced that they were removing the event from the future Olympic programs. They had to make room for the new edition of BMX. This news must have been bittersweet for Hoy. He started out as a BMX rider as a kid in Scotland. It was great news that the BMX had become an Olympic sport, but devastating that it had to happen at the expense of his specialty event. Hoy's father, David, didn't hold back his disappointment in an email to Cycling News. He said, The UCI has removed an event which has been an Olympic blue ribbon discipline since the start of the modern Olympics over 100 years ago. This will completely unbalance track cycling. That's when Chris and David came up with an idea. What if they broke the world record right before the 2008 Olympics so the UCI could see what they were missing? As David put it, The catalyst was dropping the kilo from the Olympics. Chris was looking for a way of finishing his kilo career on a high. That was supposed to be the Beijing Olympics. But that was taken away from him, so we wanted to thumb our noses at the UCI. The world record got everyone excited and Bolivia, of course, was the only place to do it. Of course, Bolivia at one of the most remote sporting arenas in the world, the Alto Irpavi Velodrome outside La Paz. Wait, what? Why was this beaten down old track, that was so awkward to get to, the only place to do it? Well, this area is legendary in the track cycling world. There's something magical in the
2: air, or rather lack of it. The traveler who crosses Bolivia's high plateau toward its chief city, La Paz, comes upon it suddenly, picturesque, bright colored, a city in miniature. Here a quarter of a million people live in a modern community, two and a half miles above sea level. La Paz is the highest big city in the world, higher even than Lhasa in Tibet. To the thin cold air, the people of La Paz are well adjusted, although living so high does make a difference, even in people who were born to it. And the foreigners who come from such sea level points as Lima or New York find that the scarcity of oxygen converts climbing a flight of stairs into a major physical effort. And walking up one of the steep streets becomes a Herculean task. There are many strange phenomena in life at this altitude. There is so little oxygen that fires are difficult to start. So no one carries fire insurance. An automobile loses 40% of its power and it takes six minutes to boil a three-minute egg.
0: Fifteen world records have been established here. No other velodrome in the world can boast so many. The Alto Irpavi Velodrome is the perfect place to break world records because the air is thinner, literally less dense, and therefore offers less resistance. You travel faster through it, or in other words, it takes you longer to slow down. This is illustrated at La Paz's tiny airport. It has one of the longest runways in the world because it takes much longer for planes to come to a stop. I personally think Hoy's decision to stage his attempt at La Paz was also so he could say he'd beat his rival Tourneau under exactly the same conditions. The thing that made Tourneau's attempt in 2001 intriguing was that it was shrouded in so much mystery. There's no real information out there on Tourneau's ride, explains Scott Gardner, the sports scientist who accompanied Hoy to La Paz. There's no footage of it, no real data at all. Some of the stories, true or false about Tourneau's attempt, have passed into folklore, and have contributed heavily to the mythology surrounding the Kilo record. Tourneau arrived in La Paz a week before his attempt, allowing his body to acclimatise and adjust to the oxygen-starved air. When asked how he dealt with the conditions in La Paz, Tourneau later said, It took me a few days to get used to the altitude, and I confess that the hardest thing for me wasn't the effort of riding the Kilo in itself but rather these peculiar conditions. But I managed to get used to them under very tight medical surveillance. Trineau had been struck down with altitude sickness for a few days before his attempt, a condition that can render you barely able to move. A friend of mine, Kean Woods, recently hiked up to Everest Base Camp with a group that's over 5,000 metres above sea level.
3: We all, we all eventually made it to base camp, but uh, some of us in you know, better repair than
0: others. I asked Keen if he experienced any of the effects of altitude sickness.
3: Yeah, I I luckily have kind of mild symptoms of altitude sickness. Like, I mean, it's impossible to kind of avoid. After 3000 is when altitude sickness will start to get you. Uh, So it makes life kind of interesting when uh, there's so little oxygen. Like, you'll have a resting heart rate of about 100. Like, just sitting down and doing absolutely nothing. Your heart will be, like, beating quite fast. And then, if you try doing anything, like just multiply that you know, by the, you know, the effort you're trying to exert, and then you'd know, just be breathless too. Like you'll be, you'll get up in the morning and you'd be like, "All right, time to get, trying to get, trying to put on clothes and stuff," and you'll be putting on trousers and, and socks and tying shoes at normal speed and then not realizing. And then suddenly you'd be like, "Because <sighs> you're like trying to, you're going too fast. Like everything you know, just slows down." And weird dreams as well. That's another really common kind of symptom. Uh, it's just, you just have these mad hallucinatory dreams because you're, you're kind of not even, you're never really fully asleep when you're at that kind of altitude. You never really sleep, probably kind of like half conscious, half unconscious. Like if you're getting three hours of sleep and then waking up for an hour and going back make sleep for three hours, that's considered like really good sleep in the mountains. Also, you're constantly being for whatever reason. Uh, possibly also because people are taking diuretics, which helps with altitude because it keeps your blood kind of thin. Uh, the problem is if, if you go, if, you, if you're if you at altitude, your blood gets thicker basically. It's it's the, it's the body's way of responding to the lower level of oxygen. So if there's less oxygen, the blood gets thicker. That way it can absorb more oxygen. The huge problem is if it gets too thick, it stops uh, working, you know, can't pump around the body. So people were taking diuretics to keep the blood thin but that makes you pee constantly. So I had all that, basically. But it was completely manageable, I-, I thought.
0: The severity of the symptoms of altitude sickness can also just depend on how lucky you are genetically. Some people's physiology allows them to cope better than others. If you hike up to Everest Base Camp, your guide will most likely want to monitor your heart rate and your blood oxygen level regularly to see how your body is coping.
3: Yeah, yeah, we got it tested by the guide like uh, every night and every morning and that was their sort of like turnaround kind of metric i guess and it, and actually if your heart rate's too too low and your oxygen levels too low then then they would turn you back your oxygen your heart rate needs to be high to order to supply your body with the oxygen it needs it needs to actually be if you think about it if there's half as much oxygen it needs to be like twice as fast basically actually as it turns out i have really good oxygen levels so obviously the air only has 50 oxygen. That doesn't mean your blood has 50% oxygen. Because it depends on how much you're breathing and how efficient your blood is at absorbing oxygen. So when it was 50% oxygen at base camp, my blood oxygen level was like 85%. So I, I pretty much had the highest oxygen level for the, of the whole trip. So I was kind of lucky, I guess. Because I was obviously, it's completely physiological. It isn't, you can't train for that. It's just kind of... I think it's just genetic. It's completely down to your body and you know, what you have, what you're born with basically.
0: One rumour in particular about Tourneau's attempt caused the Hoy team some alarm. Following the Frenchman's record-breaking ride, it was said he collapsed and passed out. Apparently, he was unconscious for almost half an hour. In reality, Tourneau later confirmed it wasn't quite so dramatic. No, I was not unconscious but I had to wait 35 minutes before I could talk and it took me about an hour before I could walk again. I remember that my team had to cut open my suit, my top and my shorts, because I had the feeling that my legs doubled in size. I was conscious before my ride of the dangers of altitude, but I wasn't expecting such pain. Even after taking the time to acclimatise, with the level of physical exertion it takes to ride the kilo, the body will be oxygen deprived by the end in an already low-oxygen environment. Juno was accompanied by a fellow French rider in 2001, Lauren Gannet. He took to the track to tackle the 500-metre time trial record. At around the 200-metre mark, he crashed heavily, in part because of the dizzy state he found himself in as a result of the lack of oxygen. The risks are real. So what's the worst thing that could happen? I asked Nick Hart, a senior performance specialist at the Altitude Centre in London. He helps athletes to prepare or train at high altitude.
4: So altitude sickness is what's known as a progressive illness, which means it comes in stages. And it basically comes in three definitive stages, which are mild, moderate and severe. Basically mild AMS, just looking at head is typically he defined as like a headache.
0: AMS stands for acute mountain sickness.
4: Nausea and pins and needles, sleep disturbance, lack of hunger, those sort of things. So there's nothing's going to stop you climbing. Nothing's going to massively impair physical performance, but it's it's uncomfortable basically. But moderate AMS is the next stage, on. So you've taken some paracetamol, you've taken some painkillers, and that headache's still there. That nausea has turned to vomiting. Um, and um, you have what's known as ataxia, which is kind of a change in coordination movements, potentially some sort of neurological changes in terms of function, things like that. And that's kind of towards the severe end of it. And then you get severe AMS, which is inability to move, inability to walk and function. And ultimately, it can lead to, to, to two quite serious conditions. One's known as HACE, which is high altitude cerebral edema, which is fluid on the brain. The other is high altitude pulmonary edema or HAPE. Which is fluid on the lung. So that's when it starts to get more serious. And typically, most individuals, if they are going to suffer those symptoms, which are unusual, but they will start to suffer them kind of four and a half to five thousand meters plus, typically speaking, unless you're unlucky.
0: Unless you're unlucky, Chris Hoy was no doubt given a similar speech on the risks by his doctor, Kenneth Bailey. It was then suggested by someone on Hoy's team that there was one way of avoiding the effects of altitude sickness altogether. He could do the opposite of what Turno did, and not allow his body to acclimatise at all. Altitude sickness usually takes about 24 to 48 hours to kick in, above 3,000 metres. So once travellers stop ascending, they typically give themselves three days in total for their bodies to adapt and adjust to the altitude. After three days, the body increases the red blood cell count to help absorb more oxygen from the thinner air. Hoy's team proposed that if he did the attempt within 24 hours of being at altitude, he'd avoid any risk of getting sick. He could attempt the record and get back down to sea level again as quickly as possible. When I first heard this, I thought, that can't be right. You can't fool your body like that or beat it to the buzzer, surely. But apparently... You can. And as Hoy listened to his experts, he started to come around to the idea, especially when they explained that the helicopter method, as they started to call it, would allow him to maintain greater power output and ensure against something called detraining. I was super interested to understand the merits of these two very different approaches and get an expert's opinion on which they thought was better. So I asked this guy again.
4: Hi, I'm Nick. Um, I work at the Altitude Centre in London. And I'm one of the senior performance specialists.
0: First up, 2 method, acclimatising for a week at altitude. What does Nick think?
4: I could actually argue that if he's going to do it, do it properly and stay there for longer than a week. Heading out early is is the traditional approach or the the approach that a lot of athletes use. And again, in modern ways, that's changed. But essentially what you're looking to go out there and do in the, the period pre-to-race is to... Remove the impact, I guess is the right word, or the negative impact that the altitude can have. And you go out there, you acclimatise the environment, remove that, uh, that 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 extreme from conditions. So then, essentially, the body is used to it, so it can then perform at its best. Basically, the same way if you were to go and perform in a hot country, you go out there and in advance, do some heat acclimatisation, and then go and race. These things that we talk about, hot, cold, altitude, they're known as environmental extremes. So you have to get the body ready for them to maximize performance. You go out to location, you sleep at location, you live at location, you do everything at location. And again, I'd argue that you'd be looking at any minimum of one week in the modern world is closer to two now and anywhere between two to four weeks prior to the event to, to do, to, to pre acclimatize Um, And you've got there the two approaches. So going out to location and living out at location is known as live high, train high. The pros of live high, train high is that you spend significantly more time at altitude. You know, resting and sleeping is spent at altitude. um, And the athlete can acclimatize essentially quicker too because they get more hours in. However, the drawbacks are when you are at 3000 meters, you just cannot physiologically hit the same sort of intensities in training that you would at sea level, so potentially looking at the French athlete we're talking about now, yes, he could well have acclimatized, but there could be some detraining methods, some detraining taking place in terms of physiological stance because there's no way he's going to be able to put the numbers out or the wattage out that he would need to put out in those final training blocks when done at altitude. In his case, he went out there a week in advance, so I'd probably hypothesize he was in a taper at that point, so it's probably less important for an athlete considering it for two to four weeks that's something they need to take into account yeah so um we've seen roughly in our chamber you tend to see a 15 to 20 percent drop off in ftp in individuals at 2700 meters now that's pretty significant um you know in the everyday athlete detraining is something maybe that you, you just get used to you know with work and life and things like that but when you're talking about a highly tuned athlete who has everything placed down to a team you know they're essentially putting out 550 watts rather than 600 watts now that is quite a significant drop off and that means that they won't necessarily be either using the correct energy system or getting the specific adaptations the coach had in mind when doing that and again if you're doing one or two efforts of 20 30 40 seconds it's not an issue but if you're doing repeated sprints or you're doing longer efforts maybe more aimed at the, the last kind of 15 20 seconds of that kilo ride where it's more aerobic then yeah you you will see a drop off in performance and the drop off in performance tends to be less than the gain that the air pressure gives you, if that makes sense. So it's a, tra- it's a trade-off. So you, you, you drop power, but you drop resistance.
0: So with Tourneau's approach of living high and training high, he'd still benefit from less air resistance, but he also risked detraining slightly, i.e. losing some power. And the kilo is all about power. Living at altitude allowed his body to adapt to the conditions, potentially produce more red blood cells and increase his lung capacity to take in more oxygen. But there's one key thing about the kilo. It's primarily an anaerobic activity. You see, for sprint events, the body doesn't use that much oxygen to produce energy. So high altitude training isn't that advantageous to sprint riders.
4: It's typically aimed at uh, in more, more endurance-based activity, yeah not saying they shouldn't it's just it's typically and traditionally been used by more endurance athletes given the fact that we're talking about the kilo today there is a very large component of that activity which is using the anaerobic energy systems and anaerobic energy systems do not need oxygen therefore in terms of that side of things in terms of sleeping at altitude there would be less There's still not. There's still. There is still a benefit to doing it, but there is less. There's a big chunk of the energy that we would have used would have been produced without oxygen, either via the ATP pcd system or via the lactate system, neither of which need oxygen. So, carrying more around is of no benefit in in those ones. The drop off in 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 aerobic performance will be smaller than a than a more endurance based event, but the gains due to the speed that those guys are going to be going from the, the drop in, in, in air pressure, therefore the drop in resistance will be much greater. Does that make sense?
0: So it seems Nick is more convinced by Hoy's helicopter method.
4: Personally, I think that is the, the right thing to do for, for a sprint event. I think it is the right thing to do for a record attempt.
0: But there is another method in between Hoy and Tourneau's approaches, a method that might take the best from both.
4: The other option of where we step in with some athletes doing stuff like this is instead of um, you going to the altitude, the altitude can come to you. So you can have a tent put over the bed. Athletes can sleep at altitude, and replicate the exact conditions they're going to, except they don't have to go out to location. We've got a portable altitude generator that can generate altitudes up to 6,500 meters, which for athletes is way too high, but for mountaineers is needed. You put a tent over the bed and hey presto, or oh, living at sea level and sleeping at altitude It's known as live high, train low. When you look at live high, train low, Again, there's pros and cons. The pros, the cons are is that you spend less time at altitude. So potentially it can take slightly longer to acclimatize. You know, realistically, the athletes we've worked with at at this sort of level tend to spend anywhere from 14 to 16 hours in the tent a day. So not just sleep, but kind of other bits and pieces, but that's still less than the 24 they would have spent if they were living there. However, the pros are is that they can live at home with the family and the niceties and all the things that come with that. And in addition, they can train at sea level. So if they're doing their big intervals on the track or the walk bike, they can actually hit the specific numbers they need to hit in terms of intensity. So there's less risk of detraining in terms of that side of things.
0: The key thing I've taken away is that it's all about finding a balance. What's right for sprint events like the kilo would be terrible for more endurance-based events, like the hour cycling record, for example. That record is all about how many laps you can do in the period of 60 minutes.
4: There is a sweet spot in there. Again, you see a lot of the hour results, again, not some of the modern ones, but some of the ones in the past have been done kind of sixteen, seventeen hundred 1,700 metres. You can have a look around and door and that sort of area because there's a sweet spot between, you know, you can pretty much fully acclimatise to, to 16, 1,700 metres, so it has nearly no drop-off in physical performance when done right. But you then have the decrease in air pressure, so you get the slight benefit in terms of resistance, with very small drop-offs in terms of aerobic performance. So that's where the, the the sports science stuff comes in and finding that perfect balance in that. Because if you tried to do the hour record at 3,000 meters, it would be a poor performance because, yes, the air pressure is lower, but the drop-off in aerobic performance is so much larger because it's such a longer event that the, the, the pros and cons don't weigh up. Does that make sense? And the, the best, the best reference is the sixty-eight Olympics in Mexico. I think they broke the world record in everything up to four hundred meters. Broke the world record. Athletes were running faster due to the, the drop in air resistance. Everything over four hundred meters was considerably slower. Um, so the marathon time was minutes slower than it had of, than it was four years ago. Pullicus did the athletes were doing it at two thousand meters rather than sea level.
0: Chris Hoy had decided on his strategy. The approach carried some risk, as Hoy himself hinted at with a casual comment of, I can handle a bit of pain if it's worth it. The problem would be that if his body really needed oxygen in the closing stages of the ride or just after, it would be shocked to find that the air contained, to be strictly accurate, 33% less of the stuff than at sea level. The body might react badly to that, so it was decided that whenever he was off the bike, he would breathe through an oxygen mask. And there would be an oxygen filled body bag ready trackside if he needed it. Chris's father, David, helped him find a sponsor to cover the cost of the trip. The shipping, the timing equipment, and the anti-doping official, but that was it. The total raised came to just 40 grand. It was just about enough. If Hoy did break the record, There'd be no big bonuses. The only reward would be bragging rights and a place in the record books. David Hoy was tasked with making sure the velodrome on Bolivia was wasteworthy. He tracked down the velodrome's chief custodian, Mr. Bolivian Cycling, Ruben Martinez, president of the Bolivian Cycling Federation. Martinez was 73 at the time, but looked more like he was in his 40s. He held every Bolivian age standard record from 40 years upwards and his son was the Bolivian Kilo record holder with a time of one minute, four seconds. With no prior introduction, David Hoy sent Martinez an email to ask if they could use his beloved velodrome. Martinez responded by immediately traveling from his home in La Paz to the Alto Irparvi Arena armed with a video camera. Then he walked around the track, his camera honed on the line that Hoy would take for his Kilo attempt. Ruben's commentary described every hole, blemish and crack in the concrete. His hand hovered over the surface, indicating the bits that Hoy should pay attention to. Bumpy surface here, Martinez would say, on the grainy video he sent back to David Hoy in Scotland. It was thanks to Martinez and a few other Bolivian cyclists that the track remained in use at all. The Alto or Parvi track is seldom used for international competition. Trineau's world record attempt in 2001 was the last event of note held there, so a lick of paint and a tidy up were well overdue. Work was needed to fill in some of the cracks and gaps on the track itself. And local volunteers had to use sides to hack away the overgrown grass let loose in the infield. Most modern track cycling events are done indoors on a wooden track. So how do outdoor tracks compare? I asked Team Ireland cyclist Eamon Byrne. Because valid they come in so
1: many shapes and sizes. You wouldn't believe. The wooden ones are obviously perfectly smooth, generally perfectly smooth. There's flex in the wood, you know, there's a bit of absorption in the wood. It, it rides it rides what's nicer. Uh, La Paz is 333 metres. So it's it's a different size, again, to any of the modern ones now uh, indoors. They're all 250 metres. So there's many outdoor velodromes that could be made of tarmac that are still 250 metres and will have the same banking as an indoor wooden. But it is night and day. It's night and day, depending on the track you're in. When you're outdoors, you're open to, I mean, the conditions, you know, you're open to weather, you're open to rain. The surface can be quite bumpy. The surface, generally, if the tracks are bigger, the, the banking isn't as uh, steep, which won't give you as much of a a troll around the corner, so to speak, you know. It's yeah. not something to really kind of lean into.
0: It's the night of Thursday, the 10th of May, 2007. Chris Hoy is in Miami, Florida, after finishing a week-long training camp. He boards an overnight plane to Bolivia. The six-hour flight is due to land in La Paz at 5.45 a.m. on Friday morning. The plan is to make his first record attempt that afternoon. But en route, Hoy's plane develops problems with his hydraulics. Given the added complications of landing at high altitude, specifically the difficulties of stopping, the pilot opts to divert to another Bolivian city, Santa Cruz. One saving grace is that Santa Cruz is located at sea level, so Hoy's internal altitude clock has not started ticking yet. The problem though is that Hoy's optimum weather window is very tight. It's forecasted to get progressively worse over the weekend. By 2.30pm on Friday, about the time Hoy had hoped to be warming up on the track, He's still at a small airport in Santa Cruz, waiting. Finally, at 7pm on Friday, roughly 22 hours after leaving Miami, Hoy arrives in La Paz. His detour involved 10 hours hanging around in terminals and a two-hour transfer between airports and in Santa Cruz. There is a small party to meet him at the airport. 73-year-old Ruben Martinez, Mr. Brave and Cycling, has been waiting all day, along with the rest of Hoy's team. Hoy travels directly to the track. First, he walks slowly around it, studying the surface, visualising the ride. In his grey hooded top, with his head down, he looks like a boxer. Then, he completes a full race warm-up, a 40-minute routine. It is a stunning evening, the sun bathing the track in a pleasant, glowing heat. There's not a breath of wind, it is almost eerily still. Tiny tubes carry oxygen into Hoy's nostrils whenever he's off the bike but on it, without the oxygen. He says he hardly notices he's at altitude. Everything is perfect. He's a little tired after his 22 hour ordeal, but he confirms we will go for the record in the morning. But in the morning, the conditions have changed. It's cool, chilly even. Hoy rides around the track in long sleeves and leggings. He thinks, Perhaps we should have gone for the record last night, but he dares not say that out loud. His support team appears anxious and nervous. Warm up completed, Hoy disappears into the tent, an oxygen mask claps to his face. As a crowd begins to gather, Hoy faces an agonizing dilemma. Should he postpone the attempt and wait until tomorrow? Then again, the forecast is notoriously unreliable in the mountains. There's no guarantee it would be better, it could be worse. The biggest problem is the temperature. Scott Gardner, the numbers man, had done the maths. He figured one degree is worth a tenth of a second, a significant margin. At 8 a.m. it's 12 degrees in the track center. Gardner reckons it needs to be a minimum of 16 degrees. By 8.45, the temperature rises to 14 degrees. It's encouraging. Less so is the wind, which is also rising. So it's a question of balancing out the warmer, thin air with the stronger breeze and deciding when would be the optimum time to go for the record. Cold air and wind are the time trialists' worst enemy. Modern velodromes try to eliminate these factors as much as possible.
1: Lots of indoor tracks you can literally, you can control, some of are climate uh, controlled, you know, you can change the air pressure and the temperature by putting the heat on, which is what mo- mo- lots of the big competitions will do they'll put the heat on because you know you get faster times so you'll find as competitions go on and the, the, the velodromes get hotter the, the times get faster close the doors please that's what you, you know you want to get the heat up because you can feel it if there's a draft in a velodrome the temperature drops but you can feel the wind because not you're not used to feeling wind in a velodrome so you know when there's a bit of a draft the doors are open or they've left a the service door open in you know in some of the training sessions before a competition you'll know when the doors open but yeah, uh, you, you you want that. You want the heat on. You want the the doors all closed, and the hotter the better. Always. Heat also
0: helps the body perform better.
4: The reason for temperature is is explosive power. That's why they do it there. There's good evidence show that when muscles are warm and kept warm, a reduces chance injury. B you can produce more power. At
0: eleven a.m. The temperature passes 16 degrees, so Hoy goes for it. He bursts out of a start gate. His massive legs begin to build up power down the straight. Because the Alto Ripavi velodrome is 303 meters, as opposed to 250 meters, its straights are extra long. Curious, deathly silence as Hoy completes the first corner of his kilo world record attempt and enters the back straight. The noise dies away completely, The crowd watch him race up the opposite straight for what seems like an eternity. It looks like he's pedaling in slow motion as if he's in a silent movie. Then he returns to the home straight, appearing to speed up as the noise erupts again. He flashes across the start-finish line, mouth still open in silent roar. The timekeepers pour over their computer screens as they convey the information to Roy's team. He's almost a second up on Turno's record. A second? His average speed is 3.8 metres per second, his top speed hits 60 kilometres per hour. Now he's on the back straight again, pedalling silently, taking an age to reach the bend. Again around the corner, the volume increasing for the final lap, the final push, and again the study of the computer screens. The lead has fallen slightly, but he's still 0.873 seconds up on turno. around the arc of the final corner, and the first sight that the effort is beginning to tell, a noticeable wobble as he enters the back straight, his shoulders swaying, and now a roar as loud as the one that greeted his starting effort as he thunders down the home straight, across the line, and silence. It's a horrible silence that can only mean one thing. Failure. The clock has stopped at 59.103 seconds. It's the second fastest kilo in history. Hoy has broken the one minute barrier, but he was still 23 hundredths of a second slower than Tourneau. 0.228 of a second to be exact. Hoy collapses on the ground, as the doctor attaches an oxygen mask to his face. A small crowd gathers around him, including his mother. He doesn't get up for the next seven minutes. What those seven minutes felt like, I'll never know. But I know someone who might have an idea.
1: Those are my life-defining moments are or post-kilo or like post one-minute tests. They're pain like, like, like no other. It just grabs you, it hurts you, you can really feel it in really feeling your glutes and your quads but I can only explain it as it's in your body you know like it's it's like it, like I had it has affected me before I, I genuinely like sort of you know started getting darker think things started closing in a little bit I think I went blind in one of my eyes once very temporarily now I'll state but it, it's that's the all-out effort there's no blood left in your head you know it's all <laughs> it's in your legs it's in your legs the rest of your body but it's the, the like so we've gotten some like lactate blood testing after efforts. It stays up there too. It doesn't you know it they're they're pretty high numbers. Lots of the machines won't read as high as what, what, what sprinters can go to. But then that's just again, that's how we're built.
0: Eventually Hoy gets up off the ground and climbs on his static bike, slowly pedaling to remove the lactic acid from his muscles. His quick recovery blows away his doctor. Hoy describes the ride to his team. My head exploded in lap three. It was all I could do to keep pedaling. I've never experienced anything like it. There was no oxygen coming in. It was like being underwater. Last night when I was training here, it was 15 degrees warmer. So if a degree is worth a tenth of a second, as we've calculated, then you do the maths. In the car on the way back to the hotel, Chris and his father had a one-to-one chat. David asked Chris if all the talk of potential danger had bothered him. More to the point, had the prospect of imminent death put him off his ride. Yeah, with people telling me I'm going to die, you're never gonna give 100% with that thought in your head. You're gonna go into, you're going into the unknown and you might subconsciously hold something back if you're a little bit scared. But he got through it, practically unscathed, so, Now the fear was gone. Tomorrow he'll attempt the record again and this time he won't hold anything back. It surprises me that an athlete can attempt another major physical effort so quickly after the first. How could you possibly hope to do better after exhausting so much energy? To put it to Eamon, he explains that it's not unusual to do two kilos in one day during a competition.
1: There's a qualification and then there's the finals and it's the same I think in world champs now as well for lots of the events two kilos in one day so it's a case of literally get off the bike and straight into recovery mode get on the you have to get back on your on your bike onto your static trainer spin flush the lactate out of your legs you know just keep moving get it get it through your body get yourself recovered, get get some fluid get your your carbohydrate in it's kind of like sometimes you can't think about how painful it is because you have to go again um, and, it, and it's interesting it's interesting because it's it's part of, like a lot of it is psychological too now i'm not saying you're we're not in pain but but sometimes you just have to keep going don't you you know what's coming up so well they don't have time to lie on the floor now and and, and roll around I, I mean it does take a certain sort of personality to go that deep you know um i don't think everybody can do it because if everyone could they'd all do it There are sessions where, like, they're the hardest sessions to know you have to go and do, you know, a lactate tolerance um, training session where you have just two huge efforts in the space of, you know, 40 minutes apart. It's so hard to climb back on that bike for the next one, knowing that you're definitely going to give it 100% again. And oftentimes, the second session, the second effort is the, you know, it can be better. You can have better power. Um, and it's funny because you just go deep again it's just like right flick the switch forget I'm playing I just have to go for it and I think I, I, the weird thing I, I, I always find in training often my, my toward effort or my fourth effort is just my better effort because the body's really primed you're gonna go deep as you did on the fourth one you're not afraid of it so you just go for it um, and it's a big part of warm up strategies like you have to kind of go quite deep in your warm up to get to get ready for what you're about to do to yourself. So sometimes it's just priming the body and getting the body, you know, ready for what's about to come.
0: It's Sunday morning, 9 a.m. The sky is clear. It's already warm and there's virtually no breeze. Near perfect conditions. The crowd that had filled the velodrome the previous day has gone. Only a few die-hard fans remain, among them, a small TV crew for Cycling TV. Day 2, the second attempt on this kilometre record. Well, they thought that Chris Hoy would need to be taken to a hospital after his attempt yesterday, but the weather conditions are absolutely perfect. The temperature over 20 degrees centigrade. let a... Hoy goes through the same routine as the day before, sitting on the track, then rising, and climbing aboard the bike, sitting upright, aggressively slapping his helmet into position and then leaning forward and gripping the handlebars then bang he's off after the first lap the to
5: be by this man, but he's still up.
0: after two laps he's still up the final lap.
5: completely lost it. His body shut down. He's into massive
0: oxygen. Lift. Can he beat this record? There's no wobble this time. Hoy powers down the final straight towards the finish line.
5: Oh, it's so close, so close, but the time is 58.880. He is 0. .005 outside.
0: Failure. The clock says 58.88 seconds. Compared to two knows, 58.875. Five thousandths of a second is the difference. If you were to measure the gap between turno and hoy in distance, it was 2.3 centimeters. That's the diameter of a one euro coin. The difference between success and failure. That's it, concedes Hoy. It's not a possibility to go for it again. In an ideal world, I could stay, recover, and go a bit quicker. But not tomorrow, not after doing two kilos like that in 24 hours. I gave it my best shot and it wasn't enough. But hey, nobody died. The event wasn't a complete loss though. The next day, Hoy went on to break the 500 meter record and 71 year old Ruben, Mr. Bolivian Cycling, broke the 2000 meter master's world record. Hoy would retire from cycling in 2013, but not before winning his sixth Olympic gold medal.
5: So we're going to turn our attention now to the men's kilometre time trial.
0: Tourneau's kilo world record was eventually broken in 2013, indoors in Mexico. It was actually broken twice in one night at a World Cup event.
5: The world record has been broken in this already by uh, Maximilian Levy of Germany. We're seeing here Francois Purvis, the world champion in the kilo, going now head to head. This world record has been held since 2001 by the Frenchman Arnold Turnon, and Levy beat it in just a, a few moments ago. Can Francois Purvis hold on to the pace that he's putting in? Can he do the unthinkable? Francois Purvis trying to beat the time of Levy of 57.949. Can he beat the world record? He has, he's beaten Levy, he's broken the world record. Look at the time, 56.303 from the Frenchman. The world record, which was held by Arnold Turnon from 2001 at altitude in La Paz has been broken twice in one night.
0: That record still stands today. Hoy never attempted the kilo record again and no international events have taken place at La Paz since Hoy's visit. The place must hold a very special place in Hoy's heart, though, because he named one of his Hoi branded bikes in his range the Alto Air Pavi. Ian Woods, Eamon Byrne and Nick Hart for talking to me When he's not racing for Ireland Eamon is a track cycling coach at Blackline Coaching This has been a story for yarnpodcast.com Written and narrated by John Roach With original music by Drembot.